Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number six, 1 Kings chapter 3. The last words of 1 Kings chapter 2 are that the kingdom was established in Solomon's hands. The elimination of potential rivals and rebels gave him a firm foundation now from which to run his government. Now the previous chapter tells us what Solomon did to gain national stability and this next one is going to explain how he went about solidifying his reign and increasing Israel's status in the middle and in the the Near East. So open your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 3 and we're going to read it all. 1 Kings chapter 3, that's page 370 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. 1 Kings chapter 3. Shlomo formed an alliance with Pharaoh king of Egypt by marrying Pharaoh's daughter. He brought her into the city of David where she lived until he had finished building his own palace, the house of Adonai and the wall around Jerusalem. The people, however, were still sacrificing on the high places because no house had yet been built for the name of Adonai. Shlomo loved Adonai, living according to the regulations set forth by David his father. Nevertheless, he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. Now one time the king went to Gibeon, that's Gibeon, to sacrifice there because that was the main high place. Shlomo offered a thousand burnt offerings on the altar there. And at Gibeon, Adonai appeared to Shlomo in a dream at night. God said, tell me what I should give to you. And Shlomo said, you showed your servant David my father much grace as he lived before you honestly and righteously having an upright heart with you. You preserved this great grace for him by giving him a son to sit on his throne as is the case today. So now Adonai my God, You have made your servant king in the place of David, my father, but I am a mere child. I don't know how to lead. Moreover, your servant is among your people whom you chose. A great people, so numerous they can't be counted. Therefore, give your servant an understanding heart, able to administer justice to your people so that I can discern between good and bad. For who is equal to judging this great people? of yours. What Shlomo had said in making this request pleased Adonai. And God said to him, because you've made this request, instead of asking long life or riches for yourself or your enemy's death, but rather ask for yourself understanding to discern justice, I am doing what you requested. I am giving you a wise and understanding heart so that there has never been anyone like you nor will there ever be again anyone like you. I'm also giving you what you didn't ask for. Riches. Honor greater than any other king throughout your life. More than that, if you will live according to my ways, obeying my laws and mitzvot like your father David, I will give you a long life. Shlomo awoke and found it had been a dream, but he went 
to Yerushalayim, stood before the ark for the covenant of God and offered up burnt offerings and peace offerings. He also made a feast for all of his servants. And after this, there came to the king two women who were prostitutes. And after presenting themselves to him, one of the women said, My lord, I and this woman live in the same house. And where she was in the house, I gave birth to a baby. Three days after I gave birth, this woman also gave birth. We were there together. There was no one else with us in this house except the two of us. During the night, this woman's child died because she rolled over on top of it. So she got up in the middle of the night and took my son from next to me while your servant was sleeping put it in her arms, and she laid her dead child in my arms. And when I awoke in the morning to feed my child from my breast, there he was, dead. But when I took a closer look later in the morning, why, it wasn't my son at all, not the one I gave birth to. The other woman broke in, No, the living one's my son. The dead one is your son. And the first one said, No, the dead one is your son. The living one is my son. This is how they spoke in the presence of the king. Then the king said, This woman says, The living one's my son, your son's the dead one, while the other one says, No, the dead son's your son, the living one's my son. Bring me a sword, said the king. They brought a sword to the king. The king said, Cut this living child in two. Give half to one, half to the other. At this, the woman to whom the living child belonged addressed the king because she felt so strongly toward her son. Oh, my lord. Give her the living child. You mustn't kill it. But the other one said, Well, it will be neither yours nor mine. Divide it up. And the king answered, Give the living child to the first woman. Don't kill it because she is the mother. All Israel heard of the decision the king had made and held the king in awe. For they saw that God's wisdom was in him, enabling him to render justice properly. You know, this is one of those meaty and preachy chapters. Even if it might not seem so at first glance. There's enough historical and spiritual ammunition in here to keep us busy for a while, and I'm not one to waste ammunition. So we've got a lot to talk about today. But first, let's talk about Solomon. The first step of note that Solomon took as undisputed king was to create alliances with surrounding nations. And this was invariably accomplished by marrying into the family of the hoped-for ally. In the case of verse 1, the hoped-for alliance was with Egypt. So Solomon married the Pharaoh's daughter. Now I'd like you to notice how the writer of 1 Kings is, especially here, speaking like a historian. And not as a person who was either involved with the events or even a witness to them. He explains in a brief summation and an overview that Solomon married this Egyptian princess, had her live in the city of David until he finished his own palace and completed the building of the temple. So it's obvious that this writer-editor of 1 Kings lived at a considerably later date 
than the events he's telling us about so that he was able to kind of look back over a, a broad spectrum of time and see how all these various events were pieced together. <clears throat> now I tell you this because Christians at times get a little flummoxed, even angry, when they hear a Bible scholar say that a book was written a couple hundred years or more later than the prime characters in the book lived or even the events depicted in the book occurred. Some think it's almost kind of a heresy. In other words, while David and Solomon lived in the 10th century B.C., it may have been the 8th or even the 7th century B.C. before what we're now reading was actually written. And so sometimes a believer thinks that such a scholar that explains this reality is disputing when David and Solomon lived or that having the book written so much later reduces its credibility. The truth is that most of these books that form the Bible were written well after the events depicted in them and the scripture writers often worked from oral traditions that had been handed down and various written documents from much earlier times. At the start of this book, we talked about certain documents actually mentioned by name in the scriptures themselves as being the source documents for much of Kings and Chronicles. The same is true for most of the Old Testament. Now let me give you an analogy. <clears throat> Some of the best books written about our American Civil War that was fought in the 1860s have been published only in the last 20 years. The authors use government documents from that time and through thorough investigations of old newspaper articles and private letters written by soldiers to their family members, memoirs of army commanders and all kinds of other sources, they're able to see that terrible war in a panorama that folks living then couldn't. Battles and political decisions from various locations around America were all happening at once. And they had unseen effects one upon the other. But most folks only knew what was happening directly in front of them. Only in retrospect, and when a person such as, a, as the writer of the book of Kings gathers up documents and inf information from a number of sources, only then does a, a, a more complete picture emerge. And the picture that emerges from 1 Kings is that King Shlomo had a very definite strategy for his governance. It was that he would create peace and security for the kingdom of Israel by means of forging personal and familial relationships with the leaders of neighboring countries. And he took this strategy to the extreme as he as we get an estimate that he eventually married a huge quantity of wives and concubines that was the customary sign of these alliances and it numbered around 1,000. Now, as concerns Pharaoh's daughter, 
It was not at all against Torah law for Solomon to have married her. For a Hebrew to marry an Egyptian was legal. It was marriage to Canaanite women that was forbidden. Listen to uh, Exodus 34, 15 and 16. Do not make a covenant with the people living in the land that will cause you to go astray after their gods and sacrifice to their gods. They will invite you to join them in eating their sacrifices and you'll take their daughters as wives for your sons. Their daughters will prostitute themselves to their own gods and make your sons do the same. Speaking of Canaanite women. Deuteronomy 7.1 Adonai your God is going to bring you into the land you will enter in order to take possession of it and he will expel many nations ahead of you. The Hitti, the Gergashi, the Emori, the Kenani, the Prezi, Hivi, Yavusi, seven nations bigger than stronger than you. And when he does, when Adonai your God hands them over ahead of you and you defeat them, you are to destroy them completely. Don't make any covenant with them. Show them no mercy. Don't intermarry with them. Don't give your daughter to his son. Don't take his daughter for your son. The only caveat in all of this was that a foreign wife had to give up her former pagan gods and worship only Jehovah. And as we know, that didn't happen very often. On the surface, Israel was prospering, living in well-being it had never known. It seemed as though the God of Israel must have been pleased with them. However, there was a serious and insidious problem going on in Israel. And verse 2 says that it was that the Israelites were sacrificing at high places. And even more so was Solomon. The scripture passages make it clear, though, that Shlomo loved Yehovah. This is a much different term than typically used for his father David's relationship with God. And in his case, it was that David was zealous for God and that he walked in Adonai's ways. Now we must understand that the term love, ahab in Hebrew, is not denoting warmth or a stirring of the emotions of this king towards God. In this context, the idea is of a vassal in relationship with his king. In political terms of that era, love was the usual term that described loyalty of the vassal to his master, of the lesser king to the greater king. So a better translation of our modern times would be that Shlomo was loyal to Yehovah. Rashi, however, says that the reason that this marriage with the Egyptian woman was mentioned out of the countless other marriages of Solomon is that it marked the beginning of a regression in Solomon's devotion to the Lord. Saying that Shlomo loved God in the same breath as saying that he married the Pharaoh's daughter 
is to give us a relative marker in time that this, right here, was the pinnacle of Solomon's faithfulness to Jehovah. And from here on, things deteriorated. And that deterioration had to do with manner and place of sacrifice and worship that was ongoing. Let's take a short archaeological detour. Because the issue in play is a very important one. It's important for the context of both books of Kings and also both books of Chronicles. The Hebrew word that is usually translated as high place is Bama. The reason the English phrase high place was chosen to translate the word Bama is not because it is a literal rendering of the word, it's not, but because the word is describing a religious site and these ancient religious sites were more often built up on prominences or hilltops. Even a man-made earthen mound like this one up at Dan that got intentionally elevated above its surroundings. Now, whether Hebrew or Canaanite, the belief was that gods lived on mountaintops. So, sacrificial altars were built at the highest places reasonably available. Yet we also know that like with Elijah and his infamous battle with the worshippers of Baal, these Bama could be present in valleys. Often the picture is painted by Bible scholars that these Bama were primarily located out in the countryside. But as recent archaeology has discovered, they appeared everywhere in cities and villages. Sometimes the Bama was no more than a, a, just a pile of stones for a crude altar. Often there was a fir tree planted next to it, as in Asherah. More well-to-do folks hired stone cutters, and they made their altars fancier, even ones that included horns on the four corners. Sometimes small houses were built next to the altars where worship and prayer and festive banquets took place. And the wealthiest folks used generous amounts of gold and silver implements in their rituals. And as a coup de grace, some aristocrats hired their own private priests as kind of a status symbol to perform the sacrifices at their own private altars. What we need to understand is that God's commandment to sacrifice only at the place He designated was just not being enforced. Thus the people fell back to ancient Middle Eastern customs. They built their own altars at their homes. Now recall that before Israel left Egypt and was given the law at Mount Sinai, they too sacrificed at home altars and the typical officiator was the senior firstborn in the household. The firstborn acted as a kind of family priest. 
and the custom was so enjoyed and ingrained among the ancients, they didn't ever want to give it up. There was even a special ceremony of transference of the family priest tradition to the Levitical priesthood requirement. Right? And it was officiated by Moses out in the wilderness to mark the end of that former way of sacrificing. One of the major tenets of the law of Moses was not only who could officiate the sacrifice, which was now Levitical priests, but that now sacrifice should only occur at one place. And that one place was to be designated by God. The first designated place was the bronze altar in the courtyard of the wilderness tabernacle. And of course, the sacred tent traveled with the people, so the Location of it changed regularly during their 40-year journey from Egypt to Canaan, but once they arrived in the Promised Land, that tabernacle was set up in a few different places, the longest running place probably being Shiloh. Now, later it was moved to Gibeon. So indeed, there was in existence a single authorized place for sacrifice at all times, even after Joshua took leadership, but the people rarely used it. You know, there is a brief but quite illustrative story in the book of Judges about this exact matter of private altars. It is really worth the reading. Open up your Bibles to Judges chapter 17. Judges 17. Page 291 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. There was a man from the hills of Ephraim named Michayu, and he said to his mother, You know the 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you? You pronounced a curse about it, and you told me about it. Well, the money is with me. I took it. And his mother said, May Adonai bless my son, as he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. Then his mother said, I solemnly dedicate this money of mine to Adonai in order for my son to make a carved image overlaid with this silver. So now I'm giving it back to you. But he returned the money to his mother and she took 200 pieces of silver and gave them to the metal worker who made a carved metal image overlaid with silver. It was put in Micaiah's house. This man, Micah, owned a house in, of God. So he made a ritual vest and household gods and consecrated one of his sons who became his priest. At that time there was no king in Israel. A man simply did whatever he thought was right. There was a young man from Beit Lachem in Judah, from the family of Judah, who was a Levite. He had been staying in Beit Lachem, but he left there to find another place to live and came to the hills of Ephraim, where eventually he made his way to the house of Micah. And Micah asked him, Where are you coming from? And he answered, I'm a Levite from Beit Lachem in Judah, and I'm looking for a place to live. And Micah replied, Well, stay with me. 
and be a father and a priest for me. I'll give you ten pieces of silver a year in addition to your clothing and food. So the Levite went and agreed to stay with the man. The young man became like one of his sons, and after Micah consecrated the Levite, the young man became his priest. And he stayed there in Micah's house. And Micah said, Now I know that Adonai will treat me well because I have a Levite for a priest. The issue of a single authorized place of sacrifice as being important to Jehovah cannot be overstated. Because the Hebrew people ignored this commandment. Their sacrifices, no matter how expensive, were not acceptable to God. Every time they killed an animal and burned it up on their private altar, officiated by a family member or a hired Levite, they sincerely believed that their sins were being atoned for and they walked away from that ritual certain of it. But they were wrong. Think of what a dangerous delusion they were living. Imagine believing that you are safe and secure in harmony with God, but it turns out you're not. The use of these private altars and private priests was also an indication of the moral decay of the people, such that they preferred to do so critical an act as sacrificing using their own way and all the time professing, defending, believing that by doing so they were pleasing the God of Israel. Never mind that the Holy Torah tells them something else entirely. This may be jingling some bells in your mind about now. At least I hope so. Because this mindset of my way when it comes to obedience before God is not exclusive to the ancient Hebrews. In modern times, believers... We believers go through all sorts of man-made religious gyrations certain that we're pleasing to God. And when in truth these gyrations are as nothing or they're worse. In other cases, people who identify themselves with Christians can't even tell you exactly why they are Christians. Some will say it's because they live a good life. Some will say it's because their parents are Christians. Others will say it's because they go to church. Some adorn themselves with religious icons, head to foot, put stickers on their cars, and assume that such a display is kind of like a spiritual flu vaccination. <laughs> Some who don't go to church at all do attend on Christmas and Easter and they rely on that to show God that they're pious. Others may attend a Passover Seder or a Feast of Tabernacles celebration. Think that's the key. 
Many have no idea what salvation or redemption means and don't think they need to be delivered, but they still insist that they're Christians. In other words, many who think they're believers and therefore right with God do so based on nothing more than some long-standing cultural norm or some small personal action or inner feeling or, or national celebration even if many of those things are actually forbidden by the Lord. We tend to fill our lives with our own 21st century high places and then we expect God to honor them as sanctified and proper worshipped and to be pleased at least with our sincerity. If everyone is doing it, how can it possibly be wrong? I can't think of a more dangerous position for anyone to be in today or 3,000 years ago. In verse 4, Solomon at this time still spiritually close to the Lord, goes to Gibeon in worship and sacrifice. Note that he did so because Gibeon was still seen as Israel's main high place, or as it says in the original Hebrew, Hagadol Bama, the great high place. And indeed, Gibeon was where the remnant of the wilderness tabernacle stood and where the original bronze altar fashioned below Mount Sinai still operated. It's important for us to see that since the word Bama is not used as a negative term here, we don't need to assume that all private Bamot, plural for Bama, scattered around Israel and used by Hebrews were inherently pagan or even that the word Bama is meant to speak of something that's necessarily bad. Very likely many of these high places were new and they weren't converted Canaanite Baal worship centers nor were other gods automatically worshipped there. Rather, a large portion of them seem to have been dedicated only to Jehovah, the God of Israel, but that doesn't make the existence of them right or in any way effective for their intended use. The reality is that the tattered remains of the wilderness tabernacle at Gibeon was not as it should have been. Just as it would be for those joyous Jews who returned to Jerusalem from Babylon many years later and rebuilt their precious temple, the Holy of Holies would remain empty. The single furnishing that made the temple or the tabernacle, the holy place it was meant to be, was the Ark of the Covenant. And David had moved the Ark of the Covenant to a tent shrine he had built for it in the city of David, and it was still there. The wilderness tabernacle with its altar was separated by several miles from the Ark of the Covenant at this time. 
in the city of David was an altar. At the hilltop above the city of David, called Mount Moriah, was another altar. The one built on Arunah's threshing floor. And of course, you have the original bronze altar located at Gibeon. Were any of these places acceptable to God as authorized places of sacrifice to Him? The reality is, the conditions were such that the perfection required by the Torah was not being met. But as I've grown fond of saying, this is not heaven, it's the world. And in the world there are troubles. Things aren't perfect. Was Jehovah supposed to not accept any attempts at sacrificial atonement because not one place existed that met all the requirements he had set down at Mount Sinai? Would the God of Israel refuse to have a relationship with his people because there didn't seem to be a single channel of worship or ritual remaining in which they had not polluted it or spoiled it in some way or another? Conditions in this world are never going to be perfect to allow us an easy or a straight path to a right relationship with the Lord. And God doesn't demand perfection from us to love us or to save us. This is the practical definition of grace. It's so now, it was so in all past eras. So, the answer to that question of would God have a relationship with His people in spite of their imperfect worship appears in the narrative of King Shlomo at Gibeon. And in verse 4, it says that Gibeon, at Gibeon, Solomon presented 1,000 burnt offerings to God. Now here I must remind you, the number 1,000 is a representative number. It's not a precise number. 1,000 is the largest unit in the Hebrew language, LF. So the idea is that an inordinately large number of sacrifices were offered up, but something far better then the dense smoke of all those burnt up animals was produced here. The God of Israel who, led Israel, who led Israel out of bondage in Egypt, who hovered protectively over them for 40 years in the wilderness, he appeared to Solomon in a dream, in assurance that he still watched over his people. It's a beautiful and awesome scene, really. There on the hills of Gibeon, a huge festive crowd had celebrated and worshipped along with their king, and they were ready to return home. I mean, one can imagine after such an inspiring day that Shlomo looked over the dispersing multitudes and, and, and he wondered at just what an amazing work God had done, but also he wondered what chance did he ever have to properly govern and shepherd such a diverse and set-apart people, a people that didn't belong to him. They belonged to Jehovah. 
that very night the Lord came to him in a dream and he said, Tell me what I should give to you. Tell me what I should give to you, said the father. This was not the grateful genie of the bottle offering a generous reward to his master for freeing him. This was the Lord inquiring of Solomon to see what sort of a man he was. Despite how it might seem as we ponder Holy Scripture, dreams and visions that were of a divine nature didn't happen all that often in the biblical era. But people who claimed such things were many. Those who wanted it to happen were even more. Everyone, it seems, had their story of a dream. People spent substantial sums of money for seers to interpret those dreams. Most of the time, these seers were charlatans, merely taking advantage of folks who were caught up in superstition, but who were also convinced that their experience was real and had meaning beyond the fantasies that our unconscious minds seem to spin sometimes as we sleep. The issue of dreams and visions became problematic enough problematic enough in time that the prophets began to warn people about them. And the wise Solomon wrote cautions about it as well. Listen to Ecclesiastes. 5 3 through six, uh, 5 3 through 6 don't turn there if you make a vow to god don't delay in discharging it for god takes no pleasure in fools so discharge your vow better not to make a vow than to make a vow and not discharge it don't let your words make you guilty don't let the temple official that uh, you made the vow by mistake uh, don't let, tell the temple official that you made the vow by mistake. Why give God reason to be angry at what you say and destroy what you have accomplished? For this is what happens when there are too many dreams, aimless activities and words. Instead, just fear God. Open your Bibles to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 29. Isaiah 29. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's going to be page... uh, We're going to start on page 479. We're going to read verses 6 through 14. Isaiah 29. You will be visited by Adonai, save an oat with thunder, earthquakes, and loud noises, whirlwinds, tempests, and flaming firestorms. Then all the nations fighting Ariel, everyone at war with her, the ramparts around her, the people that trouble her will fade like a dream, like a vision at night. It will be like a hungry man dreaming he's eating, but when he wakes up his stomach's empty. Or like a thirsty man dreaming he's drinking, but when he wakes up he's dry and exhausted. It will be like this for the horde of all the nations fighting against Mount Zion. If you make yourselves stupid, you'll stay stupid. If you blind yourselves, you're going to stay blind. You're drunk. 
but not from wine. You're staggering, not from strong liquor. For Adonai has poured out a spirit of lethargy. He has closed your eyes, that is the prophets, covered your head, that is the seers. For you this whole prophetic vision has become like like the message in a sealed up scroll. When one gives it to someone who can read and says, please read this, he answers, I can't, it's sealed. If the scroll is given to someone who can't read with the request, please read this, he says, I can't read. And then Adonai said, because the people approach me with empty words, the honor they bestow on me is mere lip service, while in fact they have distanced their hearts from me and their fear of me is just a commandment of human origin, therefore I will have to keep shocking these people with astounding and amazing things until the wisdom of their wise ones vanishes and the discernment of their discerning ones is hidden away. People who get all caught up in dreams and visions, certain that God has visited them, given to them special wisdom beyond all others. The kind of wisdom, and this is the key, the kind of wisdom that says that even though the Holy Scriptures say thus, God has told me to do differently. These people are not God's friends. They're just people who go their own way. They enjoy a sense of self-importance. They co-opt God's name to try and legitimize what's in their evil inclinations, what they're being led to. But here on the hills of Gibeon was Solomon. The dream was quite real. Solomon was being asked to examine and search his inmost soul and mind for the answer to a question that would challenge any of us. What would you ask God for if you could have anything? The answer has much to do with how much our desire is to please the Lord. Some years later, Messiah would be sitting and talking with his most impulsive disciple, Peter. And he asked Peter a question that on the surface seems so straightforward, but in reality penetrates directly to the core of who we are. In John 21, Yeshua asks this. After breakfast, Yeshua said to Shimon Kepha, Simon Peter, Shimon bar Yochanan, do you love me more than these? And he replied, yes, Lord, you know I'm your friend. And he said to him, then feed my lambs. And a second time he said to him, Shimon bar Yochanan, do you love me? And he replied, yes, Lord, you know I'm your friend. And he said to him, then shepherd my sheep. And the third time he said to him, Shimon bar Yochanan, are you my friend? Now Shimon was hurt that he questioned him a third time. Are you my friend? So he replied, Lord, you know everything. You know I'm your friend. And Yeshua said to him, feed my sheep. See, Peter 
was not supposed to answer so quickly. Or in a knee-jerk reaction. But rather, he was to think deeply on this. Yeshua's hope was that Shimon Kepha would say something like, I do love you. And so I understand that the greatest love I can ever give back to you is to spend my life taking care of your flock in the same sacrificial way as you would until you return. Peter, unfortunately, didn't do that. Solomon, on the other hand, answered most wonderfully and in three parts. In thanksgiving, in confession, and in a petition for God's help. And this is a very good pattern for us to follow each and every time we approach the Lord in prayer. Shlomo thanked the Lord that the greatness of his own father David was only possible for the same reason that he now sat on the throne of Israel as the designated son to carry on David's dynasty, which itself was promised and assured by Jehovah. And that reason is God's grace towards David and Solomon. Then Shlomo confesses that of himself he has no ability or knowledge how to lead these chosen people. He says he's a mere child, which is a Middle Eastern expression of humility, not so much a a statement of chronological age. And finally, he petitions God as what amounts to his response to God's initial question. Tell me what I should give you. He asks that the Lord would give him an understanding heart that was able to properly administer justice and so that he could discern between good and bad. That is the answer of a shepherd king. Not a typical human king. It's the kind of answer that a true worshiper of the God of Israel who understands his position in relation to God would give. And Yehovah told Shlomo how pleased he was with such an attitude. We'll discuss the Lord's response to Shlomo's petition next time.